Welcome to episode two of Chat with the Conductor. Uh, my name is Grant Gilman. I'm the music director of the Alpharetta Symphony. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Mac Frampton, who's going to perform with us on our September 15th concerts. With a career spanning nearly five decades and more than 4,000 concerts across the globe, Mac Frampton is a piano virtuoso who defies categorization. Billboard magazine hails him as an immensely talented pianist, while critics describe his performances as electrifying and dynamite. His collaborations range from the Boston Pops to Montevani, and he's shared the spotlight with icons like Bill Cosby and Glenn Campbell. Raised in a musical household, Mac's journey began early, subbing on church organs and improvising tunes for community events as a young boy. His talent and passion propelled him to Erskine College and later the Cincinnati Conservatory, where he earned master's and doctoral degrees. His pivotal moment came when he received a special medal at the Van Cliburn International Piano Competition, encouraging him to meld classical technique with jazz and rock elements. Beyond his concert stage performances, Mac has made significant contributions to musical reviews, curating shows celebrating the works of legendary composers like George Gershwin and Cole Porter. He's also founded the Hollywood Hills Orchestra, focused on the grandeur of film scores and the Three Penny Symphony, offering modern takes on classical pieces. As a prolific recording artist, Mac has over 20 albums to his name and even a motion picture soundtrack. He continues to reach diverse audiences from community halls to cruise ships, carrying the philosophy that music is the ultimate form of communication. Currently based in Atlanta, Georgia, Mac is not just a revered musician, but also a proud father of two sons following in his creative footsteps. Whether it's through his solo performances or ensemble work, Mac Frampton remains a captivating force in the world of music. With this large reputation preceding him, Mac Frampton is not to be missed in his upcoming performance of the legendary Rhapsody in Blue. You can catch this musical tour de force on September 15 at 8 p.m., where he'll be joining Alpharetta Symphony Orchestra at the Alpharetta First United Methodist Church. Now, without further ado, let's welcome the immensely talented, ever-evolving, and truly electrifying Mac Frampton to the podcast. Welcome, Mac. Hello there, Grant. And who are you talking about just now? <laughs> I got to tell you, every time I do an interview like this, somebody always says that. They're like, that's me? I didn't, yeah, I didn't really. realize. Uh, but I have been around a while. You know, I should update my bio because it's now been close to 60 years that I've been, you know, actually earning a living playing the piano. Uh, I started very young. I, I was uh, four years old when I started. <laughs> Never mind. None of the jokes. Uh, yeah, I've been at it a long time, and and I have done something like four thousand concerts all over the world. And you and I share you and I share something in common because we both went to the best conservatory in the world, right? That's right. That's the right. Cincinnati Conservatory, and uh, I was there back in the day when it merged with the University of Cincinnati. And my sense. first year on campus, they didn't even have a conservatory yet they were building it and so we were meeting in all sorts of rooms all over the place my very first master's recital was held over in the student union building uh which has nothing to do with uh, the conservatory it's a whole separate building and it was snowing that night and a fire alarm went off right in the middle of my concert and my i didn't know what to do i was a you know scared to death first year grad student and uh the fire alarm went off right in the middle of the Griffiths Piano Sonata, and uh, I kept playing, you know, and finally my teacher came up on stage and stopped me. So um, 
you know, and then we started, we regrouped and went again. But uh, yes, some amazing experiences in, in the wonderful Cincinnati Conservatory. That's what we're always taught to do. I mean, the show goes on no matter what. So do, does it go on before we get to the fire or after we know there's no fire? Like, we don't know. That's we just keep exactly playing. right. Just keep playing. That's right. You know, one time I was performing a concert and uh, I think I was in Alabama somewhere. Maybe it was either Mississippi or Alabama. And it was a very, very uh, stormy night, but we had a full crowd there. And I'm in the middle of playing a, a piece, and suddenly I noticed somebody had come on stage and was, I mean, I'm in the middle of the piece, you know, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder, and I just about came off the piano bench because I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> and he leaned over and whispered at me, I don't want to alarm anybody, but we have a tornado warning. And so I said, okay. And I stopped the piece quickly, and I got up, and I said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I've just been told that there's some weather and with, I hardly got the word weather out of my mouth and the entire audience got up and ran for cover because they knew what it was about before I even said it. So I've been through <laughs> everything. You know, when you've been at it this long, you've done it all. That's right. That's right. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the concert coming up. Um, yes. So you've, you've performed Rhapsody in Blue in many various venues and uh, with different orchestras, each providing different unique acoustics and atmospheres with with all of these hundreds of performances under your belt was there a particular venue or collaboration that brought a surprising new dimension to the piece and how was that experience influenced your subsequent performances yeah well i have to go back to the very first one i did which was with the boston pops um and i was still in school when when i did this uh eric kunzel who was the conductor um Arthur Fiedler had just retired, and Eric Kunzel was vying for the position. He ended up not getting it, of course, but he later formed his own orchestra, I think the Cincinnati Pops or something. Anyway, he invited me to come to Boston and play it, and uh, it was such a, a great opportunity for me, but I had never performed the Rhapsody in Blue with an orchestra before. So uh, that, has to, that has to stand at the top. Nothing will ever eclipse that. Uh, although it was my first performance of the Rhapsody in Blue with Orchestra, it's the one I most remember. And I was at the first rehearsal we had with the, your orchestra. I <laughs> I told the orchestra that what put me at ease because I was terrified out there on stage was that the clarinet solo at the beginning of the piece, the first clarinetist with the Boston Pops flubbed the glissando. And with that, your clarinet player said, thanks a lot, Mac. And I thought, oh, no, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> but that did put me at ease. It was a memorable performance, and uh, I'll never forget it. And then, of course, I have been very inspired by different audiences ever since. Right. Yeah. Uh, our our clarinetist is fantastic, and she just you just had it in her head since we programmed this um, a while ago. She's had it in her, and she's probably been thinking since that moment. Oh my god. Oh my god. I, I got to make sure that I do it the best. But it, it'll be the, it'll be and great. She did. Yeah, she did. It was it was it was beautiful. I've I've heard it so many times. And, and you know, it's not an easy thing to do because you have to go across. a. am not sure the terminology you would know better than me, but there's a break in the clarinet that you have to get across and then you can do the glissando the rest of the way. Now, interestingly enough, I don't know how many people know that originally Gershwin didn't write that as a glissando. He wrote it as a chromatic scale. And at one of the rehearsals at Aeolian Hall, where the Rhapsody was first performed, the clarinetist was fooling around and did it as a glissando. Gershwin heard it and said, keep it in the show. 
and uh, in fact, schmaltz it up a little bit. So, you know, that's how it happened. And ever since, it's always been a glissando. I get the feeling that that he and Groffet were were in such a hurry to get it put together that there are a lot more things like that, things that the orchestra does that they don't nece- that doesn't necessarily and may never show up in the parts and the score. But they they I had the um, our bass clarinet player come up to me and he was like, "Look, I just can't play this this spot at this tempo. But if I put it down an octave, no problem." And I was like, "I." would not have known that it was supposed to be up an octave if you had not just said that. Yeah, <laughs> so that's probably what every bass clarinet player has ever done, whether they talk to the conductor about it or not. They just said, oh, it, it was supposed to be down an octave. They just and do it, yeah. They just uh, do well, it. You know, just do it. I, I knew this already, but as I was refreshing my memory about the Rhapsody, at the very first performance, George Gershwin improvised most of his cadenzas, most of his piano solos, so we really don't know what the first performance sounded like because it wasn't taped. And, um, you know, I don't even know if they could have recorded it back then. Um, so, and then he later wrote it out, you know, but they were in, like you say, in such a rush to do it because he had basically been duped into, into doing it. Um, Paul Whiteman had asked him to write the piece, but he had declined saying, I don't have time. And then suddenly there it was in the newspaper, you know, and he had to do it. So, um, I find it all very interesting. And the fact that these solos were improvised is stunning to me. Uh, I can't imagine how in the world that happened, but I'm certainly glad I have music to look at. I would not want to improvise this piece. Now, I understand that. I understand that. This is, there's a point at which, like, you know, originally violinists were still expected to write their own cadenzas for 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 Mozart concertos yes. and probably sing right. with pianists. But at some point, we stopped doing that in- anymore. We stopped being um, uh, uh, instrumentalists that would would improvise things like that, and that just became less and less of a need, less and less of an expectation. So now we lean on those older versions of those con- those those um, the artists at the time that were still improvising, that were still writing out their own cadenzas, and now we use those as the standard, and that's fine. Um, exactly. I mean, and then with, of course, with with. With jazz, with Rhapsody and Blues, it's a fusion of classical music and jazz elements. And I can only imagine how your interpretation has evolved over time. But through all those performances, how how has that interpretation of those jazz elements within one piece evolved? Can you can you yes. recall specific and, passages that have morphed so much that they contribute significantly to your understanding of the piece? Absolutely. Uh, uh, in fact, even this performance, I've done some things that I've never done before. Uh, there's a section of the of the rhapsody, and you know there are basically three themes. I think you know da 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 da. That's one of the themes, and then uh, and then of course the main the main theme, the 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 United Airlines theme, da do 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 do. And then there's one other one, and then there's a short little brief one that the trumpet player plays. You know da 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 da, which only shows up one time in the piece, right? So it's a it's an amalgam of different themes, but there's one moment uh, where one of the main themes comes back and it's so lyrical and so bluesy that as I was sort of rehearsing it again and, and sitting at the piano looking at it over the past couple of months, I thought, you know, I'm going to take a different approach to this because I hear it now as almost a lament, almost a lament. And and Gershman was very young. Let's not forget that he was in his mid twenties when he wrote this piece. And, um, 
So he's not really of an age to be having a lot of laments, but um, I hear it that way, and it's very bluesy. One thing I have never done, and I've heard other pianists do this, is to use the um, the swing kind of thing. Do 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 do. Unless it's written, but I've heard people do. I'm not going to do that. It just doesn't work for me. I'm too much of a classical player to uh, to do that. So, but I have evolved, especially that section. And then the other one that I have really given a lot of extra thought to is where the train comes in and the, the, the very slow opening of it. And then as it speeds up, it gets faster and faster until it gets up to the, you know, the, the cruise, cruise altitude or whatever you want to call it. And, and it stays consistent at that point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's no question that over the, over the decades, this piece has, um, has, has matured for me. I will never forget. I had been playing it maybe 15 years. Uh, I was relatively early in my career and my conservatory piano teacher came to my concert and I played it that night as a solo. And so after the concert, I said, uh, Mr. Dudley, what did you think about my um, Rhapsody in Blue? And his one comment to me was, I can tell you've been playing it a long time. That was all he had to say. I can tell you you've been playing it a long time. So I don't know whether that was good or bad, but <laughs> it's really hard to tell. <laughs> it was part it. of me. I think that's what he was trying to say was that it had become part of me. And if there's anything that has to become part of me, it's Rhapsody in Blue. Because, Grant, I have played this piece as a solo. And I've, what I've done is I don't use, and there's a solo version of it that's written out. I've never done that. I've always taken the, the part that is written for piano and orchestra. And then I've just uh, cut out sections where the orchestra is playing and jumped from one piano cadenza to the next. I've played it with a small, with a trio. I've played it with a small band. And of course, I've played it with orchestra. My main issue when I'm playing it anywhere is to remember which version I'm playing. <laughs> Let's hope I remember which version I'm playing Friday night. <laughs> I'm sure you'll remember. I'm sure I will. I'm sure you'll be fine. Now, of yeah. course, now, of course, each time you do this with a new, a new, new orchestra, a new situation, you've got a new collaboration with a new conductor. You've got, it's this ever evolving equation for, for you with which new, you know, every new performance gives that opportunity. So when you approach a new conductor, new orchestra, what what unique qualities do you focus on to bring a fresh perspective and life to the performance? And and how do you envision you and I blending artist, our artistic perspectives? You know, in in, in a well, week? I can tell you right now that you and I are, uh, are of a, of a similar mind because uh, everything you were doing at our first rehearsal was exactly what I would have done, and I had a couple of little observations to make with you, which you immediately said that's fine, let's do it. Uh, some of the tempi you took were a little different from what I would have heard, but I adjusted quickly and I thought to myself, yeah, that works. So I'm very amenable to working with various conductors and and uh, going with what they hear. And uh, and then if I have my own suggestions, I'm happy to offer them and, and uh, we'll collaborate and figure out what's the best way to go. But um Every conductor brings something new. And the other thing, Grant, that's interesting is audiences bring something different to it every time. There's an energy that happens with an audience that uh, if you're really, uh, if, 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 you're, if your neurons are, are flying like they should, you can pick up on that stuff. You hear it. 
uh, you feel it in your bones that the audience is either with you or maybe not with you or whatever. But when they're really with you, it electrifies the performance. And um, I've had that happen a few times as well. And it makes the piece different. It it literally changes the the, the feel of the piece. So regarding that, do you do you have a particularly memorable interaction with an audience member following a performance? Yes, uh, I've played the piece so many times. Uh, Aside from the Boston Pops, which will always reign supreme, uh, I've played it a number of times outside. And one time I played it outside, it started raining during the performance. And we were not covered. And we were very near the end of the piece. So we simply speeded up the tempo, got through the piece, and finished the piece, and then ran off stage as fast as we could. (laughs) So (laughs) that was an interesting performance. Yeah. So... Out playing outside is um, is always interesting. You never know what's going to happen. I mean, I've I've done so many outdoor performances, and and I've been in situations where the skies literally did open, and we had to stop the concert, you know, and race off stage. But um, and other times when it was so hot that uh, you know you could make it through the first page of the piece, and then you were you know you were so wet from perspiration that you had to stop the concert to dry off, you know. But yeah, and and I've also played it when it was so cold that I wasn't sure my fingers were going to keep working. So right. everything, everything like that, the atmosphere of the of the of the room, and then whether you're indoor or outdoor, and then the atmosphere of the audience changes the nature of the piece. Right now, of course, you know this piece backwards and forwards. Hopefully, you play it forwards this week. But um, every note, every nuance that's clear from your fresh playing of it each time that you sit down in confidence, it, it's as if you're sitting down and you're warming up in the morning just you know so i will say this every time i play it i hear something new I, I know that might seem ridiculous because i've played it thousands of times but every time i play it i hear something new i hear something that i'd never thought about before or i play it a certain way and i go oh that was nice or Matt, never do that again. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Yeah, and, you know, there, there, and also, Grant, I must say, there's no such thing as, a, at least for me anyway, there's no such thing as a perfect performance. You know, uh, I'm not a robot, and I've never been a robot. Uh, there are some incredible pianists that are robotic in their their ability to never miss a note. You know, right? Uh, that's never been me. Uh, I would much prefer to uh, have an occasional missed note and and get the music right, you know. So I concentrate more on the the flow of the music and the feel of the music than I do about the whether I'm totally 100% accurate. Though I certainly strive for accuracy. Right, right. And, and you know, some of the some of the riffs in in the Rhapsody in Blue are not easy. They're they're all over the place, you know. Some of and them, only some. Some of it, some of it, a lot of it's pretty easy, but some of it is all over the place and uh i remember learning the piece and it took me a long time to learn it but remember i was in in conservatory when i learned it so you know i had a good teacher and and i was preparing to play it with a with one of the major orchestras of the world so i knew i had to get it right so i really worked hard at it but every time i play it i hear something different well that's great well i i look forward to whatever new things we hear i was thinking about john uh, Mac Frampton meets John Cage. What do you think? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know if our audience <laughs> would go for that. There's probably an audience that would go for that, but but I don't know if ours would. 
Okay, I'll keep it in the same key. All right, all right. Maybe again, don't go John Cage as in like you close the lid and then we sit there for twenty minutes. That will that's right. Seven seconds of silence. That's right. Do that one either. And then, of course, you know, I'm also going to play a pop piece of Gershwin's. Uh, I'm going to play Embraceable You, which uh, is one of. I mean, I just love Gershwin's pop tunes. Embraceable You has always been one of my favorites, and I think it was one of my mother's favorites as well. So maybe that's the reason I love it so much. But I'm playing the verse of it, and nobody knows the verse to Embraceable You. So, um, you know, that'll be interesting to hear. Right. And, and of course, the chorus, which I think everybody that knows Gershwin knows the chorus of Embraceable You. So, And I, I'm going to arrange, um, I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to arrange uh, strings to come in toward the end of it to sort of warm it up a little bit. All right. Well, well Mac, it was great to talk to you. I appreciate it, and I look forward to the concert on September 15th. I am so excited about this, Grant. Thank you for allowing me to once again play what I consider to be the greatest piece of American piano music written in the 20th century. Absolutely. All right. Looking forward to it. Talk to you soon. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you.